It's kind of fun being around, being around the old homestead, around the piano with Uncle Dan. <laughs> I like that request night. The second verse of that song, which is just such a great song, but your word is living light upon our darkened eyes, guards us through temptation and makes the simple wise. Your word is food for famished ones, freedom for the slave, riches for the needy soul. Come speak to us today. Such a great tribute to the Lord, how he does show us his glory through his word. Take your Bibles and let's head to the last book in the canon, book of Revelation. And I told you we would be looking tonight at chapter 2 because we have now arrived at that wonderful part of the study where some very pointed messages are given to the seven churches. Amazing letters given to the churches from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The letters are strategically placed where they are in John's prophecy for one pointed reason. God is about to unfold some of the most disturbing and most spectacular and most spellbinding visions of the future that have ever been revealed. And God's people from time immemorial until he comes are going to read of it. And the people of God are going to be told what is to come And so every generation, for all time until Christ comes, we need every possible spiritual defense against drifting into unbelief, against the kinds of sins that make us ineffective in the gospel. We need every weapon against being seduced by false religion. That's what we need. We need to make sure we're not going to be overcome by evil and losing our faith. The bottom line is that God's people need to be warned and encouraged and rebuked and called to steadfast, immovable faith. That's what these letters represent and why they're placed at the beginning. Most often in the New Testament, you see theology in the epistles and then the practical outworking of it. In the apocalypse, the churches are practically instructed right up front so that then when we read of the time to come. We're supercharged, we're, we're motivated, we're called to account. That's exactly what these letters do. They come in the order that, uh, that John was told to deliver the messages to through these messengers. The first then being a letter to the church in Ephesus. And I've titled this, I've entitled this that the church that was truth savvy and yet love starved. We're told in the scriptures that we're to love one another, but we're warned to make sure that our love is not hypocritical. You remember in Romans, the 12th chapter, where that wonderful list is given of all of these great things that are supposed to take place in the church, these wonderful practical instructions. You have this pointed statement that we are to make sure that our love is without a mask, is without hypocrisy, it's real love, genuine love. Sometimes we get confused about what that might mean and 
I hope after tonight, when we look at this letter, we won't be confused any longer. Notice chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you you have left your first love Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. And do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, and I'll remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Ephesus. Wow, what a place. If you've ever been to uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, you can make your way to some of the, the excavations of this ancient city. Of course, um, mostly known for being a religious center, of course was a commercial center and a seaport, but it was a religious center of massive proportions, and, and they had a temple there, the temple of Artemis, or according to the Romans, Diana, and it was the god of fertility, Artemis was. So Ephesus, if you can picture it, was commercial, and, and it was bustling, and yet it had this massive religious center One commentator wrote of the city culturally that the chief drawing card in the city was the athletic games that were held annually. They attracted crowds from all over the province of Asia. And yet, if you went there, it was a vile city. It was pagan. In their worship of Artemis, they bowed down to fertility ideas. They bowed down to what they thought were ways to commune with the deities, and the temple itself was massive, and it drew people from the city to the center of the city. If you got close enough, and you see them in the ancient ruins today, you walk along the sidewalks, and you can see the the arrows and the signs advertised in the stone pointing you toward the temple and toward the religious practices. The temple priestesses would be advertised then down near the base of the tell and and the temple area up above, and they were advertising prostitution for the sake of communing with the gods. Immorality then was a religious rite. So you can imagine that it was a haven for criminals and all kinds of vile behavior. Pagan temple was 425 feet by 220 feet with massive columns all the way around, 120 in number. And God determined to plant a church in that place. A church. Some new believers. 
On his way back from Corinth in his second missionary journey, Paul stopped in Ephesus. And we're told in Acts chapter 18 that he sort of commissioned Apollos to sort of do the evangelistic work there. And Apollos was mighty in the scriptures and he argued the truth and, and a wonderful ministry was taking place there. Paul's next visit, his third church planting mission, he stayed in Ephesus for a long period of time, three years. And he taught them and he laid out doctrine and he preached and he went to the synagogues and the, the areas where there were pagan centers and then the areas where there were Jewish influences and he taught and he preached and he argued from the Old Testament. He trained and appointed elders in the city. And then the church was regularly like our church. It was being equipped for taking the gospel to the pagan surroundings. Eventually, when you get into the book of Acts, chapter 19, eventually Paul's ministry became so widespread in terms of the gospel that people became suspicious of the idolatrous practices, and it eventually began to affect the business of making idols. And so this coppersmith named Demetrius, or silversmith, where he manufactured idols, he had a little business meeting because Paul was disrupting the market, and there was a fear-mongering sort of spirit going on. And, and so Demetrius got this little business meeting together, and he created a narrative and said, look, guys, this guy's just disrupting our, our finances, and it's now spreading beyond Ephesus to the provinces where we deliver all of our goods. And so he singled out Paul, and he poured some religious passion on this, this little dumpster fire of his. And suddenly, at one particular day, it, it erupted into this marketplace frenzy and this riot, and everybody rushed into the amphitheater, and, and they began this massive stadium chant of worship toward Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Later, of course, some city officials warned them that if you had an assembly and it was unlawful, you're going to create some major problems with the larger governmental agencies, so we better get out of this stadium. But the riot was created because the gospel was having an impact, and the church, of course, was now going to be targeted Paul would later leave Ephesus for his final time, knowing he wouldn't go back. And in Acts chapter 20, he met with the elders there, and they were beloved. And they wrapped their arms around him and kissed his neck and his forehead and just said, Paul, we, we don't want to see you leave. And during that time, he warned them, look, after my departure, savage wolves are going to come in, not sparing the flock. I know it's coming. He would later leave Timothy at the helm to shepherd the church. And while Paul was in prison in Rome, he wrote to them. Later on, about A.D. 66, is when John, the apostle, began his ministry serving the church while he was there. And then he later was imprisoned here on the island of Patmos, as we've been studying. And it is from there that he writes this revelation with these letters. One of my Greek professors, Dr. Robert Thomas from Master Seminary reminded us in his commentary that the prominence of this church is reflected in its being the possible recipient of as many as eight New Testament books. Think about that. The Gospel of John, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and Revelation. All of that sort of came as epistles to be read or even written directly to the church in Ephesus, the people of Ephesus, or the pastors that were shepherding there. 
most notably Timothy. And Paul was ministering in Ephesus at the time that he wrote 1 Corinthians. So it became even a launching pad for the ministry Paul had in letter writing to the other places. What's interesting to note, though, is that by the time this letter is delivered to the church at Ephesus, the ministry is somewhere between 35 and 40 years old. And what is remarkable about that is how quickly this ministry developed a problem, a serious problem. A significant cancer had grown up in a very active church. 35 to 40 years from strength and passion to serious weakness and potential shutdown if they don't repent. And so this letter is a reminder and a warning. And you remember how this is going to go. John was told to write these letters, this revelation dictated to him from the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is to be delivered by delivered to the messenger, or what your translation says here, the angel of the church. You remember in our introductory work, we talked about the fact that this is most likely not guardian angels or angels from heaven, holy angels, because they seem to be included in the rebukes. Holy angels aren't rebuked. Even though angel is, angelos is used throughout the book of Revelation uh, in its context to refer to angelic beings, it seems better here to take the normal word for messenger, angelos, and see it as someone who may be a leader of the church, but that's not specified, but it is someone who has been chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ to take this message securely to the church and be included because they're part of the congregation, and they take it from John, and it comes down to the church from the Lord himself. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Notice the identification of the one. So marvelous here. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We know who this is. Verse 20 of chapter 1. For the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand. The seven golden lampstands. The stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the living one who is in the midst of his people. This is not a, none other than the living Christ. And notice, he, he holds the seven stars in his right hands as he's walking among the seven golden lampstands. He's holding them. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 16, he has them, but here it's a stronger term with greater force. He's holding this messenger to his task. I'm giving a message to the church. I want it delivered. I want it delivered exactly as I've given it because it's a warning and it is an, a, an urging and if they'll listen, then they can be useful and if not, terrible things are gonna happen. And so he's firmly holding and keeping the messenger in his right hand to deliver this message. Verse 2 then gives us now the unfolding of this message. And the first statement is, it's not um, disturbing if you know Christ and are willing to repent, but it would be alarming if you were stubborn or blind. I know your deeds. Two most common words used in the Greek language for know. This is the one that means a comprehensive knowledge and understanding through and through. 
a full knowledge. The Lord is in the midst of his church at the local assembly level in Ephesus. He knows comprehensively every heart, every motive, every genuine deed, and every false one. I know your deeds. Nothing, church in Ephesus, gets past me, Jesus says. All the real fruit that you're bearing is in front of my eyes, and I'm seeing that which is merely the appearance of fruit. I know it through and through. That's interesting when we evaluate our ministry. It's just kind of an interesting footnote and a reminder to think about. Don't imagine that just because you make human assessments of ministry, both its successes and its failures, its strength and its limitations, don't imagine that's the final word on our church. You know, sometimes people leave our fellowship and they, they speak about whatever they think is wrong with it, whatever they think we're not doing well, and, and sometimes they might be putting their finger on something that's a limitation or a weakness that we might need help with, but they don't really have the final word on it. And sometimes it is because they don't want to hear the truth, and so they might be biased against us. And it is also at times that they've picked on the wrong thing. We have all kinds of weaknesses as a church. We're an imperfect place, imperfect people, but sometimes people pick the wrong thing as a reason to leave, and they've missed the issue. Other times we might defend our ministry, and that's not even the final word. Not the final word on our ministry. Our assessment might have serious limitations. We might defend our ministry and find out in the end that we didn't biblically think enough about these things or we weren't careful enough about certain ministry aspects. We weren't thinking about the heart the way we should have. It's also true that we might be commended. We might be commended in some things that other people said, ah, you don't do very well, you guys are this or that. The Lord might commend us. We're not the final word, nor is anybody else. Similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, ah, it's a small thing for you to judge me. I'm, I'm not into earthly judgments as a final word on my spiritual life. And it's a small thing for me to examine myself and make some final comment because I don't even know. We have to wait for the Lord to reveal the secret things in the end. But make no mistake, Jesus says, I know every strength I know every weakness. So that, that backs us up one step and says if we want to make a true assessment of our ministry, we have to run to the Lord. We have to turn to Him. We have to immerse ourselves in His Word. We have to confess our need before Him. And we have to face the implications of the Scriptures for the change that is needed. And we have to repent where needed and plead with God for the grace to clean up our act and then begin to obey more faithfully. Seek the Lord. Run to Him. Otherwise, you spin off into pride or you spin off into blindness or you spin off into some sort of uh, bent that's personal. And Jesus says right up front, I know your deeds. I know your activities. I know your work. I know all you've been doing in ministry. Nothing's outside of my gaze. And I, I find it I find it gracious and kind and rather wonderful that it wasn't all negative. There were some positives here in Ephesus. And we want to note what the Lord commended here. We want to note what he commended and think about it. First of all, he commends their laboring and enduring. 
He commends their laboring and their enduring. Notice he says, I know your deeds. That's sort of an, a governing phrase. And this is sort of the specific explanation of it. And your toil and perseverance. That's the first thing he commends about their deeds. Your labor and your endurance. The terms mean that on two fronts, they were physically laboring to the point of becoming weary and they were willing to suffer. They were willing to be faithful and meet needs even though they had to suffer. These are the two words. One is, is labor to exhaustion and weariness. The other term is willing to come under whatever that might result in. Persecution, challenge, difficulty. In fact, one seems to be sort of the outward weariness that comes from just rolling up your sleeves and always putting your hand to the plow. And the other term seems to be what you have to deal with in the frustration of those burdens and, and they were willing to just remain under just be willing to come under, to stay under, to remain under the pressure. Steadfastness, long-suffering, patience. He commends them for it. And he says, I know your activity. This is a busy ministry, an active ministry. And it was obviously more than mere programs because the believers in Ephesus were serving to the point of exhaustion and weariness. And when their service brought trouble, as it inevitably can, they endured the hardship, they came under whatever the circumstances dictated and patiently pushed through. And I started to imagine what a ministry like this might look like in Ephesus at that time. Surely they, they were wearying themselves in the organizing of resources and the listing of needs and then meeting the two, matching the two to make sure people's needs were met. Certainly they were wearying themselves in the love of strangers, the, those that came in and out of town as missionaries, those that came from other areas of the province in need of instruction and encouragement. I mean, it's a hub church. It's, it's well known already. There's very, very much interest in Ephesus and the believers there. People would have been coming from other places you didn't know. So hospitality to missionaries and caring for the infirmed, that was going on to the point of exhaustion. I love that about this church. It's it's getting after the praying by bedsides and ministering in homes, and it's a great thing. No doubt they were visiting orphans and widows, as they were told. No doubt they were praying for one another. They were baptizing and, and celebrating communion. They were ordering their worship services. There was study going on uh, of the truth of Christ and the scriptures, and there was discipleship happening and maybe a lot of house-to-house -house interaction and teaching. They were even counseling one another and following up with one another on persecution, protecting each other from it, walking each other through it. It's an active ministry. This is active body life. Kind of reminds me of our own church here. Very vibrant body life, laboring and enduring patiently. I see that in a lot of the mature believers here. Not only that, there's another thing Jesus commends them for. They're promoting good character. Notice verse 2, they cannot endure evil men. The NASB says you cannot endure evil men, but the ESV says you cannot bear with them. That's closer to the verb. You cannot bear to allow those in the church whose character and conduct is evil. It's bad, bad character. The NIV says you can't tolerate wicked people. That's pretty blunt, but close to the idea. 
You don't tolerate evil. Listen, the Ephesians promoted holiness of morals and holiness of ethics. They promoted it. And if someone got in there whose character was questionable or someone got in there who was ignoring serious character flaws, they could not bear with it. They would not bear with it in the church. They didn't want someone cutting corners with morality. They were intolerant of the talkers who, who merely talk, but then they hang around the ministry and always seem to live on the fringes of holy life. They, 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 couldn't, they couldn't bear up under that. They wouldn't tolerate it. You know those kind of people. They, they come into the church and their character's bad. You can assess it, but then... They, they gravitate toward the people who are weak and vulnerable in the church, and, and then they start to attract that group, and pretty soon they've got a little following, and it's because they've brought everything down to the lowest common moral denominator, and they're the center of it. They're the ringleader. Ephesus wouldn't tolerate it. They wouldn't tolerate the weak and vulnerable being attracted to that kind of person. And in fact, just the third commendation here is related to it. They put them to the test in terms of the leaders of this kind of group. They were laboring and enduring. They were promoting good character. And thirdly, they were testing so-called spiritual authorities. Oh, yeah, you have some spiritual influence in your life? They're going to test them. You have tested those who call themselves apostles, emissaries of Christ, those who work on behalf of Christ, leaders and teachers, those you ought to listen to, spiritual authorities. Man, they put them to the test, and they found out they are not apostles they expose them as liars. So these two go together. They promote good character by not tolerating or bearing with bad conduct. And when they see that bad conduct, they trace, it, they trace that fire back to its leader and they put that leader to the test to expose them as a liar. Ephesus is serious about promoting good character and testing leaders who would destroy sheep. That also sounds familiar. We want to protect the sheep here. Ephesian church wouldn't like weeds growing up under those who refuse to have their life and character transformed. We don't like that here. We don't want to judge anyone by standing over them as if we're their eternal judge, but we encourage and urge and admonish and sometimes reprove and come alongside and help and minister to those who need help, who are vulnerable and weak. And when we sense that, as Paul told the Ephesian elders, that a savage wolf is on his way and he's a pack hunter and he's not going to spare the flock, as Jesus warned as well in Matthew 7, we have antenna that go up. I want to put them to the test. People don't like that today, the serious scrutinizing and exposing of ringleaders. Sometimes the flock doesn't even know what's going on. You know why? Because we can sniff them out when they come through the door sometimes. And then we take them off for a little meeting. And we have some discussions. And if we find out that they pretend to be one thing they're not, and we find out they are liars, the door is barred. They're not coming in. Because... They're subtle and they're emissaries of Satan and they come as angels of light but they want to destroy. They twist the scriptures. They excuse bad conduct, worldly living, fleshly appetites by twisting the scripture. We don't want to allow that. It was coming in Ephesus, 35 to 40 years into ministry and there's a barrage of it. 
And the level of seriousness about suspicious character and false teachers was there because you remember Paul had warned them. Do you remember I told you in Acts 20 he left them? It was the last time he was going to see them. And he said, man, listen, you need to understand that ministry is a safeguarding responsibility, he said in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. You need need to safeguard the flock. Take heed to yourself and to the flock of God. It's a stewardship, but it's susceptible. Savage wolves are coming. They won't spare the flock. And some will rise up from within your own midst, and they will try to draw away disciples after themselves. I'll tell you, every time that's happened here, I never get used to it, and I get the chills. It is chilling to see the subtlety of that kind of thing when someone excuses bad conduct and becomes a liar and a ringleader. Ephesus was serious about that that stuff. They got after it. I feel that. There's a fourth thing they're commended for. They even exalted Christ's lordship. They exalted his lordship. Verse 3. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Now, he's included a couple of terms in here that are familiar. They haven't grown weary and they've endured, but the central feature of verse 3 is that they did it for the name of Christ. The ministry, even though it has a serious cancer growing, it is still about the name of Christ, the renown of Christ. They were still willing to take blows for Christ as the culture was becoming hostile and the Lord commends them for that. They were still teaching the words of Christ. And because they were so doctrinally precise and and spying out false teachers and getting rid of those kinds of things, you know then that what came from the heart of this ministry was the upholding of the teaching of Christ and the commands of Christ. And no doubt Jesus is implying here that they were filled as a church with the praises of Christ. It's still all about Jesus the Lord of glory in the church. Come what may, they stood firm, and that's what Jesus appreciates in this church. They also had one final commendation. God says, I want you to know that there's something that you and I completely align on. Notice verse 6. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We'll call this one hating sensual lifestyles. Hating worldly sensual lifestyles. Apparently this movement had made some inroads at another church in Asia Minor, Pergamum. You'll notice it in verse 12 of this chapter. To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. And thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
So what is a commendation for Ephesus is a rebuke to Pergamum. This movement was trying to make inroads. We don't really have any more information than this. Historians try to make all kinds of conjectures about the Nicolaitans. The closest we can come to attaching this heretical movement to a name might perhaps, as some commentators suggest, it might be perhaps a guy named Nicholas. You, you will remember from Acts chapter 6 when the men were chosen to free up the apostles to study and to pray and then to minister to the Hellenistic, the neglected Hellenistic widows. Um, Nicholas was, a man by the name of Nicholas was in that lineup and it may very well be as some sort of, uh, you know, surmise that, that this guy was faithful at first, professing Christ and then apostatized and became part of this heretical movement, maybe the leader of it. Others have suggested that, no, this is just a movement that spun off of, uh, of perhaps that one or another guy. We don't know. But we know this, from the letter of Pergamum, that this was a similar teaching of that which was passed down from the immorality and idolatry of Israel under the teaching of Balaam. So it was a generational teaching that taught truth, spoke about being part of God's people, but lived immorally, justified the worship of other gods with God, and justified immoral behavior. The Nicolaitan teaching was similar. They were a known and named group, clearly, because he doesn't explain anything about them. They must have been known for what they taught, known for what the roots were, and they were promoting, it seems, a kind of an antinomianism that was a practical antinomianism. In other words, antinomianism against the law. No rules, no commands. We just sort of profess what we want to profess and live in a sort of dualism. I say what I believe is true, but I live like I want to live. We use biblical sounding terms, but we promote the indulgence of self. We promote fleshly living and worldliness. That would seem to be the the movement of the Nicolaitans. And this this has caused some scholars through the years to conclude that this movement fell into the sin of using Christian conscience issues using liberties as a covering for their lust of the eyes and their lust of the flesh, as Peter warns about in 1 Peter 2.16. Either way, they certainly sound like some that Peter rebukes in 2 Peter chapter 2. Look there for just a moment. What a description here in 2 Peter 2 about false teachers and heresies and the way that these heretics live. False prophets, 2 Peter 2, verse 1, also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you and they secretly introduced destructive heresies. They, they verbalize biblical terminology. They subtly take you in to imagine that they're saying orthodox things but they are at the same time secretly introducing a twist and notice, verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. That's their way of life. Their way of life is sensual conduct, immorality. Because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Verse 3, in their greed, they're going to exploit you with false words. 
And their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. This would be likely the problem of the movement of the Nicolaitans. Just a couple of pages in your Bible over, look at Jude chapter 1 where you see the similar rebuke and language. In Jude, beginning in verse 3, he writes, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. What's he mean? The body of truth is, is being threatened. The body of truth has, has been threatened by false teachers who want to secretly introduce things, twist them. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on later to talk about the fact that they live in gross immorality, verse 7. They indulge in it just like the angels did. That's the implication. Like the angels who went after strange flesh and were incarcerated until the judgment. So it is also true with these humans. They're like unreasoning animals, verse 10. They follow their lusts. Notice they went the way of Cain and rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, verse 11. Here it is, this generational teaching, this generational heresy passed down that became now in Ephesus uh, uh, an attempt to infiltrate on the part of a movement called the Nicolaitans. It had already made inroads in Pergamum, and basically what it was was men coming in using Bible language, using terminology that sounded like it was of Christ, and yet behind the scenes, they loved the flesh, lived for the flesh. This is rampant, practical antinomianism. Say the right thing, live any way you want. Say you have Christian liberty and use it as a covering for sin. And Ephesus, just heading back to Revelation, was commended by Jesus because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Of course, they were promoting godly character and godly conduct. They liked holy conduct. Of course, when they saw this, they hated it. Why did they hate it? Because, listen, beloved, immorality unchecked is what Paul said to the Corinthians that it is. It is a small amount of leaven who, that leavens the whole lump. And he says, I want you to remove the immoral man from your midst. You got a ringleader who's telling people that it's okay to do those kind of things and to live a worldly life while they talk doctrine in, a, in, a, in an orthodox way? You remove that man because he's immoral. He's got a pattern of immorality he won't repent of. Remove him. Why? Because the whole church is going to be spoiled. Immorality runs rampant, doesn't it? I mean, is immorality difficult to battle in your heart? Is lusts of the flesh and lusts of the eyes and boastful pride of life difficult to battle in your heart? And we're believers. We fight it every day. We love the Lord. So you keep immorality out of the church. In fact, he says, I commend you for hating their deeds. He says, because I hate their deeds. That's what the Lord commended in Ephesus. 
But, verse 4, here's what the Lord rejected. I have this against you. You have left your first love. You've left your first love. And I know that when you read that, you, you expect verse 5 and following to give a whole treatise on what that is. Obviously, they didn't need an explanation. It was obvious when a believer who was active in good things had come to the place where they were doing those things while ignoring real love. They were doing those things with a love that had a mask, hypocrisy. It's interesting, we get no more explanation than they lost their first love and they're told to repent. So the believers in Ephesus must have known. It's interesting that some people have thought, well, you know, what, what is being said here is that they've lost their passion. You know, they're just kind of going through the motions. Look, you can read their commendations as we've just studied them. There, there's no going through the motions. They're wearying themselves. They're exhausting themselves. They're exalting Christ. They're loyal to the truth, loyal to the teaching. There's no lack of passion here. This isn't pharisaical, you know, going through some cold orthodox motion. And furthermore, Scripture defines love not primarily as visceral passion anyway. I know our culture loves the idea of the emotional experiences of love, and rightly so. God made us emotional beings, and love has its wonderful emotional dimension and experience. But but biblically speaking, love isn't primarily de defined that way. And that's why in the Greek language you had all kinds of ways of expressing love. You, you had all those words, New Testament words you used for it, and they separated it out because they were often using certain words for a kind of love in a specific context, and everybody knew then what that kind of love was. If you said eros, you knew you were talking about sexual love reserved by God in marriage. Romantic love. If you talked about storge love, it was, it was the love that, that took place between brothers and sisters in a family, familial love, blood love. If you were talking about Philadelphia, brotherly love, you were talking about people who'd been together a long time, you're, you're to treat them as, as long-time partners in the trenches of life. And you've stayed with one another through the difficulties. If you were talking about the kind of love that does good to someone, whether you feel any emotion or not, or whether they do anything in return or not, that was agape. That was the kind of love Jesus then defined by his very act of love on the cross. But love is almost always defined beyond the passions or the visceral emotional side of things. It's interesting that in Corinth they were warned about speaking truth and having knowledge and making sacrifices without love. And it's interesting, people have thought in this sort of emotional vein, they have thought, well, what Paul is calling for when he says to the Corinthians, hey, if you give your body up for sacrifice, or you have all knowledge, or you could speak so eloquently as to draw the crowds and its heavenly language, and you, and you lack love, 
People have thought he means to say you lack the passion and the emotional side of it, then your sacrifices mean nothing. But that's not what Paul says when he defines love in 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, the definition of love is, is verbal. These are all action words. They, they all come from the heart, and they're very, very cutting across the grain of our tendencies, but you can listen to it. These are all actions. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. I mean, you want to know what love is? Here it is. Love doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Listen, Paul isn't saying to the Corinthians, look, you could sacrifice all you want, but if you don't have emotional passion behind it, it's, your sacrifice means nothing. No, he's saying if you don't have the real humility that gives up yourself for another, then it's not real love. If you say, oh, I've sacrificed all this for ministry, but behind the scenes you're selfish and arrogant and unforgiving, then it isn't real love. Some then have come to this passage in Revelation 2, and they've imagined that what happened here is that the Ephesians lost their passion. Let's see if that's the case. Look at what Jesus says. You've lost your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen and repent and go back to the passions and emotions that filled up your deeds in the first place. No. It's not what he says. He just says repent and go back to the first deeds. That's interesting. That's interesting. He doesn't call for less deeds and more emotional passion. He calls for the first deeds, the original deeds. What are the original deeds? What is the proof that your original deeds were filled with love? Well, it has to be the same love that Paul described in 1 Corinthians 13, the love of Christ, the love that is patient, the love that is kind, the love that doesn't boast, the love that doesn't keep a record of wrongs, the love that forgives, the love that isn't arrogant, the love that is not unbecoming or rude or self-centered or self-willed. Beloved, what Ephesus lost was the test of whether love is genuine. Humble, selfless sacrifice. Actual love that says no to self. If we just sort of expand the white spaces here, of this loss of first love. The the Ephesian church had obviously slipped into the habit of doing ministry in pride and self-will because everything about love described in 1 Corinthians 13 is humble and selfless. When they went after false teachers, there was pride and self-will in it. When they went after the people with bad conduct, there was some condescension in it and judgmentalism that rose up. They went beyond the word of God at times. When behind the scenes they were laboring to the point of exhaustion, they were keeping a record of how many times they hadn't gotten thanked for that. That's not love. 
when they were offended in the busyness of a very, very hot spot ministry in a very difficult culture with persecution on the rise, and they held on to the offenses, and they did not forgive. They kept a record of wrongs. They lacked the love of humility and grace that was so notable in the early years of their gospel influence. Jesus says, I want the genuine deeds. I want the selfless deeds. I want the deeds done in meekness. That's what I want. I'm burdened about that in a well-taught church. (laughs) Vibrant body life like we have, I'm burdened about that in my own heart. If if we really are truly Calvinists, so to speak, not to use the title in every way someone might use it, but if we really believe in the sovereignty of God and we really believe in the depravity of man and we really embrace the non-negotiables, then shouldn't it produce less of a view of the preeminence of ourselves and more of a willingness to just give and give and give and give, not merely physical giving, not merely sacrifice on the outside, not merely a show, but actual giving that forgives and that seeks forgiveness and that humbly serves with no motive for personal reward, that doesn't act unbecoming, that isn't unkind, but is useful and patient. Sometimes well-taught churches, man, they have some vibrant seasons, 10, 15, 20 vibrant years of high-point ministry. It's, it's rich, it's loving, it's, it's impacting, it's influential, it's humble. And then, unfortunately, if you stop considering these kinds of vulnerabilities, if you, if you take that off the table and say we're so sophisticated in ministry and so sophisticated in our doctrine, we don't have to worry about that anymore. And maybe you don't say that, but that's how you act. And you get to the point where you can't really talk about the issues anymore, and you don't really repent anymore of it. In fact, you get to the point in a sophisticated ministry that's well taught where if you walked up to somebody and said, how are you really doing, they might get offended that you would even bring it up. I mean, come on, we're a well-oiled machine. What's wrong with you? Why would you bring that up? Wow, that's, that's awkward. Pretty soon that sometimes happens at the leadership level and trickles down into the flock, and now you have a church that's well taught and that loves truth and that wants to uphold it and even upholds the name of Christ, wants the name of Christ to be renowned in the community, and what's happening is on the backside there's a massive leak. And we're losing our credibility because as Jesus points out here, you need to go back and do the first deeds. Your first deeds were so selfless. Your first deeds were so humbly forgiving. Your first deeds were so resolving of conflict in a way that honors Christ. It was so coming alongside impartially with anyone. There wasn't clickishness that, that went beyond just normal close friendships and somehow held the door because you believed you were better than a group of people across the aisle. There was none of that in the beginning of the Ephesian ministry. And Paul made sure of it, and he taught there. But when he left, savage wolves did indeed come in, and they didn't spare the flock, and the elders tried to hold it at bay. But here we are, 35 to 40 years, and a letter is being written like this. 
I've seen these seasons of church life. It's tragic. So the Lord urges them. We've seen what he rejects. Look what he urges. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen. Yeah. Look at your heart and your conduct back at the beginning and make a comparison. There it is. Look at the richest day of your ministry, the richest season of your life, the most humble when you actually were seeking forgiveness and actually repentant and actually kind and actually patient from the heart. And it cost you. It cost you self. I want you to go back and remember, I want you to remember that. And I want you to see the distance you've come. Make a comparison. Look at it, evaluate it, stare at it in its ugliness. And then I want you to look at your heart and conduct now, and I want you to repent. I want you to turn from it and go back and do the first deeds. Or else, I'm coming to you, and I'm going to remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Man, commercial center, a religious center, powerful church beginning, Apollos sort of tilling the soil, Paul coming in, teaching three years, house to house, vibrant body life, Grace Emmanuel Bible Church. So many parallels. We would never pretend to aspire to the level of having been taught by the Apostle Paul personally. And maybe in many ways we we couldn't even compare to what they were in their first deeds. But wow, 35 to 40 years later, Jesus says, you better repent or I'm going to remove your influence. I'm going to shut you down. You might still be going. He doesn't say the activity is going to stop, but you'll be blinded. It'll be worse because you'll think you're blowing and going. I mean, how many churches just absolutely keep the thing going, the shingle's still out, the podcast is still running, the guys are still being paraded across the platform in the pulpits, and the soloists are still cranking it up. There's no gospel influence at all. Jesus is not in that place. Maybe a smattering of a few believers who are, who are living in squalor and starving, but the Lord doesn't attend that church. And he warns Ephesus, I will come and I'll do it if you don't repent. In verse 7 he says, listen with ears of faith. If you have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you can hear what the Spirit says, it means you're listening with ears of faith. So you who have faith, you who know the truth by faith, you who have the Spirit, listen up. To him who overcomes, what's that a reference to? All true believers for whom this warning, this urging should hit its mark and its target and should break your heart. It should break your heart in two ways. One, the many ways you may have contributed to the weakness in the chain links already. Maybe in ways you right here have lost your first love. You no longer do it with the definition of characteristic Christ-like love given to us in 1 Corinthians 13. You're going through the motions, saying what you need to say. There's all kinds of zeal, all kinds of weariness, but selflessness? This ought to break your heart in that sense. And then it ought to, it ought to humble your heart in the corporate sense. Lord, don't ever let us get to the place where, where we don't heed this warning. We just sort of yawn, close the Bible, 
close in prayer and off to our busy, active ministry and conferences and whatever else we do. But to him who has ears and hears and repents so that you're not a weak link in the chain. To him who has ears to hear and overcomes because the Lord gives us the grace to overcome. You can repent and when you repent, he says, I'm gonna grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. What's this a reference to? Well, obviously, it spans biblical truth. The tree of life appeared in the garden and Adam and Eve were kept from it in their state of sin so they didn't perpetuate their sin for all eternity without possible redemption. They were kept from it. What a grace from the Lord. But it also appears at the end of this apocalypse, this prophecy, in Revelation chapter 22, the tree of life is there and it's, it's just a it represents life eternal with Christ, influence, light, power, eternity, salvation, glory. I'm going to give you what I promised because you will truly be an overcomer. You will truly have been an influence and, and you're going to be a light for me. So how are we doing as a church, <laughs> as individuals? Lost your first love? Losing your first love? Your first love is thin? Such a simple solution, isn't it? Go back to the cross, go back to the gospel, go back to your depravity, go back to understand from where you have fallen, go back to understand the grace that was given to you, go back to understand that you were blind and a child of wrath, as Irving said, go back to the way that you understood things, blind as an animal, unreasoning, following your lusts, and God reached into it and saved you by His grace alone. Go back to that and see the love of Christ all over again and believe in it. Reiterate your faith in it. Say you trust it. Confess your lack of, of honing it and sharpening it. Confess that your ears have become dull and gotten lazy in it or arrogant or unbelieving. And the Lord will do a work. He'll break your heart over it and maybe your weariness will, will be refreshed because it will finally be a weariness that has what it ought to have. Humility, selflessness and the sense that everything we do as a church everything we learn from God's word ought to produce in us what it produced in the forerunner of Christ himself Christ must increase and I must decrease that's what ministry here is all about it isn't about talk it isn't about being able to argue false teachers into a corner. All that is needed and necessary and commendable, but our influence comes from selfless love, love without a mask, love without hypocrisy, real, selfless, Christ-like love. Beloved, you ought to see signs of that in everything we do and everything we are. And everything we profess. You ought to see signs of it. Bow with me. Lord, thank you for tonight. Father, this has been huge for us. 
We feel like the church at Ephesus. We, we sense the parallels. We probably will sense parallels in every one of these letters, but this one in particular, those commendations just literally come right to our hearts and we see it. But we also know that with, with good, robust, doctrinally sound ministry and vibrant shepherding comes the temptation to take it for granted and to set back on our heels and rely on ourselves and use the grace that you have poured out on this ministry as some sort of badge of honor, some personal trophy. Lord, we know we've done that in our hearts personally. Please forgive us. We know as a church we haven't always been as loving and selfless as we could be. Please forgive us for that. Help us as a congregation in being a light to never compromise the truth but always speak it in humility and love for we can only know that it is truly loving when we humbly submit to you in every way in our hearts. And that means we will, we will see in the vibrant, active ministries of our church and even in our doctrinal grounding, we will see patience and kindness. We will see humility. We will see forgiveness, confession. We will see care and concern for others. Genuine love that rejoices in the truth and does not celebrate unrighteousness a love that submits to you and your plan for us that we might hope all things and believe all things and endure all things. Lord, humility is the test. So may we be humble. Humble us in these things and where we have adulterated the great graces that you've given to us, we repent. Please forgive us for that. Send us into the next years urged and charged and admonished and reproved to stay away from laziness and arrogance and self-reliance and unbelief and to not get comfortable, to never take ourselves seriously, to always take you and your word preeminently. And Lord, we want to be that light. We don't want it taken away. So use our influence, not for our sake, but yours. We pray in your holy name. Amen.